You all have heard that auditing is part of an effective compliance program, but how do you do it practically? Captain Integrity Productions is excited to announce Bob Wade has joined the Tier 1 ranked national law firm of Nelson Mullins, but we are still Stark Integrity. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the anti-kickback statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Today, we're going to talk about the who, what, and how to develop an audit work plan. When I was first integrity officer in-house, I, I had so much that I had to do in order to develop an effective compliance program. I, mean, I was looking at physician contracts. I was looking at billing information. I was looking at periodic audits. And then I heard that I had to develop or have somebody in the organization develop an annual audit work plan. And I just didn't know how to do it. And it's not that it's not like rocket science to develop it. And so in this episode, what I want to do is kind of describe the general ideas behind the development of an audit work plan. So first, let me address the who. Well, obviously, this is this uh, Stark Integrity podcast is geared toward compliance officers and also internal as, as well as lawyers, uh, internal and external lawyers who are assisting healthcare organizations. But you know, I, what I view to the development of an audit work plan being a team. Uh, if you have an auditor uh, within your organization, obviously he or she should be part of the development of the plan, but also the compliance officer should be involved. An attorney should be involved, especially if there are legal risks for the organization like the Stark Law, the Anti-Kickback Statute, and the False Claims Act. And because a lot of auditing deals with financial auditing, billing, etc., somebody from the finance department, like the chief financial officer. So when I was in-house, I, I got those four individuals together, and we did the first assessment of what should be placed into the annual work plan. And then after we developed the annual work plan, then, then uh, at least a, a working uh, work plan, then you have to figure out, okay, how do we have the work plan approved? But let me pause here and talk about one subject. You don't want to put so much in the annual work plan that your organization does not have the capacity to audit issues that come up. 
So if you have a, a hotline report or an issue that has been brought to the attention of the compliance organization or a billing issue to the finance department, you want to have excess capacity that you can develop other audits that are outside of the annual audit work plan. And, you know, from my working experience, uh, if, if you could develop an annual audit work plan that would occupy the audit staff and compliance staff and, or whoever needs to be involved about 75% of the time, leaving that 25% of excess capacity, then that allows some flexibility for the organization to audit issues as they come up. And believe me, they will come up. Um, so you want to just build in that excess capacity. So once you develop the annual work plan, again, still I'm focusing here on the who, then that work plan should be approved. And I think the best practice for the approval of an annual audit work plan goes through three different levels. Level number one is the compliance committee. Or if you have like a separate a finance or audit committee that it's tied to the compliance committee, but ultimately it goes up to the compliance committee for the compliance committee to put their stamp of approval. Uh, and also to come up with any additional risk areas that they believe uh, could be added to the work plan or also to assess the weighting of the risks involved. And I'll get to that later in this episode. So the compliance committee should approve of it. And then always, I believe, especially because the compliance officer should be reporting to the chief executive officer of the organization, that it should go to the executive leadership of the organization. Uh, so you can, they can assess the risk areas and also the allocation of resources within the organization to perform all of the audits that are recommended by the audit work plan. And ultimately, and I've discussed this many time on, times on Stark Integrity, that the board has the ultimate oversight. So a best practice would be to take the annual audit work plan up to the board, or if the board has like a, an audit committee of the board, then the audit committee of the board could approve of it. But you want to make sure that you have some type of board connection with respect to the development and approval of the annual work plan. And then still focusing on the who, you need to, to look at monitoring and the monitoring of the performance or conduct of the annual audit work plan. And again, unless you have a separate audit committee, and here I'm talking about uh, you know, the internal audit committee, not the board audit committee, but ultimately I think the compliance committee should be responsible for the monitoring of the performance and the results of that work plan, and then ultimately up to the board again uh, with respect to the monitoring of the performance of the work plan. And again, when I say board, it could be the, the whole board or an audit committee of the board. So as, as items are being audited and the results are coming in, then those audit results should go to the compliance committee and the board for the evaluation and assessment, but not only looking at the individual audit results, but looking at the audit plan as a whole. And so you don't want to just get into the weeds of the audits, uh, but you want to make sure that if you have developed an audit work plan and have a calendar or projected dates of completion for those audits, 
then you want to make sure that you are either there's a rational justification for the delay of individual audits, or you want to make sure that uh, if additional resources are necessary, uh, whatever, in order to make sure that you stay on schedule with respect to the performance of the annual work plan. So now I'm going to turn to the what. What do you look at in order to develop your work plan? Well, obviously in the healthcare industries, there are very many different segments. We have mental health, hospitals, physician practices, home health, skilled nursing facilities, et cetera. So the development of your work plan and identification of the risk areas will be very dependent on the the section or segment of the healthcare industry in which you are you have oversight. But here are some areas that I would recommend that you look at uh, with respect to the identification of potential risk areas for your organization. First off, and I've always did this when I was in-house, I would look at the Office of Inspector General work plan. They produce an annual work plan of the areas that they're focusing on, and they do segregate it by healthcare industry segments. So that's very helpful. I would actually sit down with my leadership uh, when I was in-house and would walk through the work, the OIG work plan annually and ask the questions. Is it, do we have risks in this area? Are we actually performing these issues that the OIG has identified? I also have some clients that invite me annually to sit down with them to think through their risks with respect to the identification of the risks in the OIG work plan. So that, that's one area. It's a, it's a large area because this way we know where the government is heading because they're telling us. Next, I would look at settlements. Those are published by the Department of Justice. There are periodicals out there that you can look at, like the report on Medicare compliance, where they actually would disclose the recent settlements. The Department of Justice website is very good about detailing all of the settlements and the convictions and the arrests uh, and indictments uh, that are, are coming out. So you can take a look at that and determine what did those individuals do that led up to those settlements. So that that's a and also you know you can listen to Stark Integrity. About twice a year, I go through and talk about the major uh, settlements that have been reported and discuss those various risk areas. Uh, next, you can look at contractor notices. The Medicare and Medicaid contractors, they send out notices about changes or updates, and those are, are areas of risk because if, if they are changing some billing requirements, then you need to make sure that you, you review those requirements and implement those changes. But every time that they announce a change, that creates a risk area for the organization to identify the issues that are being changed and make sure that the change does occur within the organization. Also, payers, now this is not just for Medicare and Medicaid, but this is also third-party payers, insurance companies, they will send out additional documentation requests with respect to bills that your organization is sending in. You need to look at those uh, because that tells you that there is either a global issue that they're looking at 
or it could be a, an issue specifically for your organization. And you should be able to tell by what's happening in your industry segment, whether or not it, it's a global request or you think that your organization is being specifically targeted. So if you're being specifically targeted, obviously that is a risk area. Lastly, you look at the history of your organization, your past infractions. If you've been subject to a corporate integrity agreement, you've had other compliance issues that have been raised. Uh, those could be ongoing risk areas. And I think I, I've described this before with respect to compliance. My, my view of compliance a lot of times is like whack-a-mole. The mole comes up, you try to whack it down, you may whack it down. Uh, a few years later, that mole's going to pop back up. Uh, so your, your past history with respect to the risk areas, uh, th and this is really the monitoring aspect of an effective compliance program, is to go back and review. If you had corrective actions that you implemented, are those corrective actions holding? Uh, if you've had a uh, transition in a department, like a new department director, uh, you want to make sure that new department director is doing things consistently with the changes that was previously made. So just by way of example, you know, like in the pharmacy area, the opioid epidemic is still being heavily investigated by the Department of Justice. So that's a risk area for pharmacies as well as physicians. Uh, 340B is a risk area. For home health, it could be you know physician certification of the homebound status of the patient. For physician contracting and compensation, it could be whether or not there's a methodology and we have documentation to support fair market value and commercial reasonableness, and there's many episodes in Stark Integrity that talk about that. Uh, the Stark Law and Anti-Kickback Statute risks. Uh, shared services billing when physicians and a non-physician practitioner, an APP, provides a service. Obviously, those rules have changed, and I have an episode on that. And this is for the inpatient service that's being rendered in a shared service between the physician and the APP. So that's a risk area. APP supervision. Uh, and also evaluation and management billing in conjunction with like an infusion service or testing like a COVID testing. Uh, there's been several settlements lately with respect to physicians billing an E&M encounter on the same day as an infusion or receiving a, co a COVID test. And that may not be medically necessary unless there is a specific reason, a medically necessary reason to have that E&M encounter the same day as, as you're having the uh, infusion or the COVID testing. So those are just examples of not only sources for the identification of risk areas, but also some examples of risk areas based upon you know, a couple of the healthcare industry segments. So now we're going to get to the how. Well, before I do that, there's an aphorism that I want to share, and you probably have heard of this. Anyone who loves the law or sausage should never watch either being made. So, you know, this is kind of looking behind the curtain of how to develop a work plan, and it can be kind of fun. Uh, and a lot of it is, is you know, if, if you want to get like sort of scientific with it, and that's kind of the example that I'm, I'm going to use by using kind of a risk assessment matrix. So let's say your organization has identified two risks. 
Uh, one is that it's possible that we could be paying physicians above fair market value. And also because of the change in rules with, with respect to the shared services, that it is possible that we may not be billing under the professional's provider number that provided more than 50% of the time for that inpatient on that day. So we think that there's some billing issues or could be billing issues with respect to shared services. So we've identified those risks. So next, in order to develop a matrix, you need to go through the probability of a legal or compliance risk with respect to those identified risks. And then next is the impact on the organization. Again, the probability of the issue occurring and also the impact on the organization. And so you want to uh, look at both of those in order to determine whether or not there is a you know, very low risk or a very high risk uh, within the organization. And obviously what we need to target are those issues that are high risks. So what I typically do is, is I go through a number assigning process with respect to the probability and impact. So if, on the low end, you start with a 0.1, and so you have five categories. And so a you know, uh, 0.1 is it may happen in, in exceptional circumstances. Then you go to a 0.3 that it could occur. And again, here I'm focusing on probability. Then 0.5, it might occur. 0.7, it probably will occur, or 0.9, it's expected to occur. So on the probability of the event happening, assign a 0 0.1, 0 0.3, 0 0.5, 0 0.7, or 0.9, obviously with 0.9 being the highest probability of occurrence. Then next, you want to look at the impact on the organization if that issue does occur. And obviously, this is going to vary greatly based upon the size of your organization. If you are a $100 million operation versus a $1 billion operation, obviously, the impact on the organization, if you're going to assign numbers, and I've got categories that I'll, I'll provide to you, but I also want to provide numbers so you can see how I'm assigning uh, the impact on the organization. So again, I'm going to have five levels of 0 0.1, 0 0.3, 0 0.5, 0 0.7, and 0 0.9. So if there's no legal or compliance impact on on the organization if the event occurs, meaning zero dollars, you'll sign a point one. If there is a slight impact, and here I'm, I'm talking probably an organization that is uh, about a, you know, a $50 million operation, uh, so a slight impact could be uh, you know, up to $10,000, and so I'll assign that as a point three. If it's a moderate impact, then it'd be somewhere between a $10,000 and $50,000 impact. I may assign that a 0.5. If there's significant impact, so that'd be a $50,000 up to $250,000, uh, then that'd be a 0.7. And then if there's a material impact on the organization, if that risk occurs, um, that's $250,000 plus, you'll assign that a 0.9. So let's use those two risks by way of example. And, and so first off, let me give you the risk assessment guides. So here we're going to just take the two numbers assigned and multiply them. And so once we multiply them, the product of that multiplication, you're going to assign it whether or not it's a low risk or a very high risk for the organization. So in this calculation, a, low, a very low risk would be somewhere between a 0.01 to a 0.03. 
A low risk would be a 0.04 to a 0.07. A moderate risk will be a, a 0.08 to 0.27. A high risk would be a 0.28 to a 0.49. And a very high risk will be above a 0.50. So let's go to the two risks that I uh, have used as an example. That it's possible that we're going to pay above fair market value. Well, if we have, have reviewed physician contracts and feel pretty confident about our process, but there could be some areas for improvement, then we may give that a 0.5, that that risk might occur. And also by looking at it, if it does occur uh, because of the issues under the anti-kickback statute and the Stark Law, uh, then that would have a very material impact on the organization. Uh, even the one physician contract paying above fair market value could have a material impact on the organization. So I may assign that a 0.9. So again, probability was a 0.5, and also the impact on the organization is a 0.9. So you multiply that out, that's a 0.45. So I would give that a high risk uh, in the organization. Next, looking at the uh, billing for the shared services inappropriately, uh, because these are new regulations and not everyone knows about them or has been trained about them, then I would say that the probability is probably fairly high and I would give that a 0.9. And then I, if I would assess the impact on the organization, well, it may not be that the multi million dollar type of repayment or, or case. So I would say maybe we can assign that a significant impact on the organization. So I'll give that a 0.7. So the probability of 0.9 and the impact on the organization a 0.7. So I multiply that out, I get 0.63. And that results in a very high risk in the organization. So that walks us through the who, the what, and the how. And then obviously, once you do this matrix review, then you can rank all of the risk areas uh, based upon the numerical outcome, based upon the probability and impact assignment. So now I've come to the point of the three Captain Integrity punch points for this episode. Captain Integrity punch point number one is don't do this alone. Uh, when you develop a work plan, Use your committee, use uh, the uh, compliance officer, the attorney, the CFO, the auditor, and ultimately up to the board. So that's point number one. Captain Integrity punch point number two is the what, is look at the resources that are out there, especially the government resources, the settlement and the OIG work plan. Those are going to give you a lot of identification of what are the risk areas in your uh, healthcare segment. And then Captain Integrity punch point number three, the how, as I would use some type of numerical weighting by looking at the probability and the impact and using that multiplication in order to rank the risks in your organization in order to develop your work plan. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. 
In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.